So when I was a little girl, I used to share a room with my baby sister. And one night I had been teasing her a bit before we went to bed. So after the lights were out, I felt a bit bad and I wanted to apologize. So I said to her, are you asleep? And she said, I'm not telling you. And we laugh at that because it's instantly obvious that the statement is absurd, that the very saying of it makes it obvious that it can't possibly be true. So those kind of things in the logic world are called uh, self-referentially absurd. They are absurd in reference to themselves. They're self-defeating statements, such as if I said, my brother is an only child. Saying it makes it impossible, or I'm not here. Here, by definition, is the place where I am. That's how here the word is defined. Or I don't speak any English. They are naturally absurd, and you can see it instantly, most of the time. Sometimes even in a statement, it can be hard to pick up. But when it comes to philosophies and worldviews, it, it can take a while to realize that the worldview or the philosophy that you're trying to live into or live by is actually self-defeating, and uh, doesn't, it has incongruencies, it has ways and places where it doesn't add up. And so we're in a series in 1 Corinthians where Paul is addressing the culture of the church of Corinth. And in this final point, his final chapter 15, before his last greetings in chapter 16, uh, he addresses an, an illogical way that they're living. So they are saying that they are Christians, which means they believe the gospel, which is that Jesus died, was buried, and, and rose from the dead. But at the same time, they're also saying they don't think they believe in the resurrection. That doesn't really make sense to them. How can people be raised from the dead? They disagree with that. But then they're also practicing. Some of their practices show that they do believe in the resurrection because they have certain baptism practices which would only be valid if they believed in the resurrection. They have other practices which make no sense if you believe in the resurrection. And Paul is just calling them on their inconsistencies and the fact that they are not making sense and they need to live in a way that is congruent with the gospel that they've received. And so he's reminding them of that. And before we go into that uh, presentation by Paul, I want to just show you some inconsistencies in worldviews so that we can know what to look out for in ourselves. So C.S. Lewis once wrote this about two worldviews. The Christian and the materialist hold different beliefs about the universe. They can't both be right. The one who is wrong will act in a way which simply doesn't fit the real universe. So a materialist believed that there was no external designer, no input from a, a, another power, that the world just came to be. Basically, the most f famous uh, materialist was Darwin, Charles Darwin, who came up with, he, he decided that there was no external designer, no external input into the design of the world. And so he had to come up with a theory of how it could have come about without a designer. And so the entire uh, theory of evolution is built on the premise that we are going to start with the assumption that there is no creator, that there is no designer. So I've built a little structure for you here to show you that our worldviews start with a foundational belief, a foundational premise. And upon that premise, we build structures that are resultant beliefs that we construct about the world around us. 
And then the roof that I've put on this little uh, truth structure is the visible practices, things that we do and say and the way that we live that shows that we are, have built our lives on those foundations and those, with those beliefs around it, okay? A little bit academic today. <laughs> are you with me? All right. So... Uh, a second, I've put up two opposing worldviews here, the materialist and, the, and the, the Christian. So the materialist believes that there's no creator God. That's the foundational premise. Upon that, what are the beliefs that come up from that? Well, what it means is that all of life is by chance. There, was no, there is no choice because all, there is no external power that can come and change the material world. It, it will just continue to develop by chance with survival of the fittest being the way that that happens. So if, so, if something has value for evolution, if it, then it will survive. If not, it will be bred out, okay? The trouble is that you then have the roof structure, the practice, if you do carry that through consistently is that there's no such thing as morality. Morality is not real because all of us are just here by chance. The ideas that we have about God and love and being kind to other people are just by chance. They're irrelevant because they just happen to be good for survival now. And if they're not at another time, then they'll be ignored. So there's no such thing as actual morality or value. The other worldview that I've presented here is that there is a creator, there's a designer. This is the Christian worldview. And that because there is a designer, he has put dignity into humans. Human dignity is something that exists. There's also the idea of freedom of choice, whether or not to go along with this designer that has been given to humans. And because of, we believe that, the practice would look like that we value ourselves as being created by God and that we value others, that we're able to be kind to the weak. It's not just survival of the fittest and so on. So, as you can see, if you are living in that black house, <laughs> it can become a very dark place to live if you stay there uh, with consistency. And so we have very intelligent evolutionists and Darwinians who are living in that space and are realizing that if they are going to have integrity, then there is no such thing as morality. And they are starting to develop this evolutionary ethics. What does it mean for ethics and law and family structure, etc., if there is no such thing as morality? Uh, and one of, the, one of the evolutionists is trying to to be consistent. He's a really smart guy. His name is Randy Thornhill. And he wrote a book about the natural history of rape. And he writes this in his book. Sexual coercion is a natural biological phenomenon that is a product of the human evolutionary heritage. He then got into a debate with a feminist who was also an evolutionist. And she had written a book called Against Our Wills, which was speaking against rape. And she said that she obviously was up in arms with this book that he'd written and the idea that he could say that it was just a a case of natural evolution. And in the argument, he calls her on her inconsistencies. And he says this to her, if you accept the premise of evolution, then you must accept the conclusion that there is no such thing as human dignity. And he calls her on her inconsistency. So you can understand that, that uh, it's not an easy world to live in, that, that, that black truth structure is not an easy world to live in. And other evolutionists have refused to live in that, in that world. Instead, they have said things that are a little bit inconsistent with their worldviews, like evolutionary psychologist Steven Pinker, who noted that his choices didn't always go along with the genetic imperative, what he believed about genetics. And so he says this, 
if my genes don't like it, that's my decisions, they can go jump in the lake. So he's chosen to make moral choices for kindness towards other humans that are against his genes. So although he believes in a truth structure, there, there is no such thing as freedom of choice. When it comes to actually living in real life outside of the laboratory, he, he can't live like that. Another evolutionist, Richard Dawkins, had a similar problem. He was explaining why an ex-US president, Bill Clinton, had had a whole lot of affairs, and he was explaining why this was just a natural product of evolution. We all shouldn't be so hard on Bill Clinton. But then he says, a little bit, uh, he's questioning himself, and he, he almost apologetically, he says, well, I myself have made the un-Darwinian personal decision to be deliberately monogamous. So, Okay, look, evolution says this, you can expect people to have affairs, but I have chosen to choose against my genes and choose against survival of the fittest in order to be faithful to my wife. So you can see here that his truth structure is it's not adding up. So I've put together these, these two truth structures, as you've seen, the one where there is no creator God and this black world that you get to live in, or this blue world, as this blue truth structure. The trouble is that it's not just the Darwinians that are struggling to live according to their truth structures. This is not actually a dismantling of evolution. One day we can speak about worldviews, and I'd really love to do a series on that. But actually, just as the Darwinians want to borrow the roof off of, off of Christianity and import it into their lives and say, well, we want morality, we want a, a mixed building. So as Christians, we look at the, all the experiments that have happened around a material world, and we want to borrow that. We want to bring that into our world and say, yeah, yeah, we believe in some of the science around evolution, we'll bring that into our world. And then we wonder why this, this resurrection truth sitting on top of this material, these material pillars don't fit so well. And all of a sudden we look and we think, okay, well, I'm now believing in a material, I believe in creator God, but I've built, I borrowed the world's truth structures in the middle. And so I'm building my, tr my truth around that, which means resurrection life. Like I've never seen someone raised from the dead. Actually, I'm not sure that I can also live consistently with my beliefs and my foundational doctrine. And so today we're looking at ours, not theirs, and seeing if we can build a structure that can be true from the bottom to the top, from the beginning of time to the end, and from all the witnesses that have ever been exposed to this truth, okay? So we're gonna start off looking in 1 Corinthians 15, what Paul has to say. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born, meaning that he appeared to Paul out of time with the rest of the apostles. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach. And this is what you believed. 
And so we're going to look at three questions today. The first one being, what is the true gospel? What is it that we've really believed? So for something to be true, for the gospel to be true, we are given three ways of testing its integrity. The first being its integrity and origin. What is its origin integrity? Where did it come from? Where did the, the news of the gospel come from? Secondly, the time integrity. Has it been consistent throughout time? And then thirdly, the reality integrity. Is it true to reality? Was it historical? Did it really happen? So those are the three ways we can test it. I'm going to read through that scripture again and show you the different integrities that we can find just in these few verses that Paul is explaining. So from the beginning, please. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you. So first of all, he's bringing them back to saying, this isn't new truth. I'm not suddenly changing my mind. This is what I said when I was with you. This is what you've always heard. Don't go off the rails now. Keep the integrity. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. Let's just talk about time integrity. You received this gospel. Then that, that was in the past. You've, you've stood on it. You've taken your stand with this gospel. You've kept to it. It will only hold true for you. It will only be a worthy structure to live in if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you into the future. So you are also responsible for keeping the integrity of what you believe tied in with what you heard, what came before. Verse 3, he says, For what I received, I passed on to you. So he says, listen, the, the integrity of this, the origin integrity of this gospel is, I didn't make it up. I didn't come to you with a good idea and say, guys, I've tried this. Oh my gosh, you must definitely live like this. It is just, it just makes everything so much more sense. I just feel so much better about myself. He's not making it up. This isn't a great new philosophy that he's come up with. He received it directly from Jesus. I passed it on to you. I'll go into Christ died. He was buried and raised just now. According to the scriptures, he, he died according to the scriptures. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So he has a note on time integrity. This has happened from the beginning of time. This event was foretold. So this isn't something new that suddenly happened and we didn't, where did it come from? We were warned that this was going to happen, that he would die, that he would be raised on the third day, how he would die, that he would be buried. All of that was, there is time integrity. It's not just a new great idea. He appeared. Verse 6, he appeared to more than 500. He appeared to James. He appeared to me. Again and again, he's appearing to many, many, many people, 500 at one time, to make sure that as many people as possible had this truth, enough people to be able to pass it down and to be able to measure it against each other. This is literally how we measure evidence and the value of it is how many people got it from the origin. Enough people got it from the origin. And then right at the end there, he says, Forget about what I, even if you don't listen to what I told you, any apostle that has visited you has literally given you the exact same gospel. This is what we preach. So there is a lot of origin integrity. There is a lot of time integrity from before it happened to the event, to when you heard it, to when I told you last time, then it was the same truth that I'm still telling you now. Nothing has changed. Stand on that. Don't stand on the new idea. Stand on the thing that's never changed, that came from a good source, and that really, really happened. So we're going to drill down a little bit into this really, really happened. The historical part of it, the reality integrity. So not only is uh, the true gospel has origin integrity, time integrity, and reality integrity, the true gospel is this, the death of Jesus on the cross for your sins, 
his burial, part of the gospel, and the fact that he was resurrected from the dead. That is the gospel. The gospel is not the good news that Jesus loves you. Surprise. That's true, but the gospel is the announcement that there is historical proof that is undisputable, that has many witnesses, that, that, that it is true that you can believe anything that he said, including that he loved you, including that he died for your sins, including your resurrection life. The gospel is the historical truth of what happened. Everything else is just the great thing that, that is confirmed by the gospel. The gospel is the announcement of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. To go hone in on the death for a second, I love the fact that Jesus, in his death, remains a savior concerned for the people in front of him. Because he chooses to mourn, he chooses to grieve and to express his anguish, not just by screaming and crying and the pain, but by intentionally choosing the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Bitter, strong words, they were able to express his anguish, but intentionally chosen, they were the title of a psalm. He was literally drawing the people around him's attention to the fact that what was busy happening had been predicted. Because if they said, oh, we, they knew that those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's one of our famous songs. What does it say in that song? These are the words of the song. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. He's drawing their attention. Even in that moment, he was saying, friends, what is happening right now is not only real in front of your eyes, it is real according to the history of time Going past and going forward, you will always be able to trust in this moment. And that psalm doesn't end there. It goes on to say that he will declare your name to the people. I will declare your name to my people. You who fear the Lord, praise him. And then confirms what God's going to do about it. He says, the psalm says, For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry for help. God was going to receive the sacrifice, turn towards the afflicted one. And it ends like this. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. And as they run through the words of the psalm in, the, in, the, in their heads, he ends with the words, it is finished. I've done it. Literally the word tetelestai, a Greek word that would have been what was written on an invoice on when it was paid in full. When it was up to date, the word would have meant completed, reconciled, paid in full. Tetelestai, he has done it. You can now tell the world and a people yet unborn that he has done it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The entire story has been fulfilled. So even in his death, there is this, this drawing on this integrity of the gospel as it is outworking. And then the burial is a necessary part because you don't bury living people. 
it wouldn't have been as convincing if Jesus died and as they were taking him off the cross, he went, oh, I feel much better now. It wouldn't have been, we would have all said, oh, that was close. <laughs> no, they tested, confirmed that he was dead and then buried him. Even his burial predicted where he was, would, would be buried. It was prophesied in the scriptures that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb, which he was, even though he had not one rich follower out of the disciples. Buried in a rich man's tomb and then confirmed by the resurrection. If the death was the paying of the bill, the debt, the resurrection was the receipt. The resurrection was the confirmation that he had done it, that that God had turned towards the afflicted one and had not forgotten him. Here's the thing is we, we understand that on the cross, Jesus took all the guilt of the world, all of our sin. He, was, he embodied sin, and yet Jesus was never a sinner. Even in that moment, embodying all the sin of the world, he did it out of obedience. And so he was uniquely able to not stay dead because death is a consequence of sin. And so only he was able to take the sin of the world, take it into the realm of death, and come out because he had never been a sinner. His resurrection was the proof that he was not a sinner, that he was everything that he said he was, and he was able to do everything that he said he would do, including that our resurrection is a certainty. The true gospel. If Jesus rose, Charles Spurgeon tells us, if Jesus rose, then this gospel is what it professes to be. If he rose not from the dead, then it is all deceit and delusion. We are building our lives in a truth structure that is either smoke and mirrors or based on historical flat facts congruent with a world that we are able to live in according to everything that we believe from the beginning of time to the end of time, from the base of our truths and the premises and the doctrines all the way up to the way that our practices would look like. That is the truth that is confirmed in the resurrection. It really happened for real. Jesus didn't just, I remember as a, as a teenager, I was trying to share the gospel with my, with my mom. And I remember saying to her, mom, but Jesus died for your sins. And she was like, okay, my love, if you want me to believe that, then that's fine. Jesus died for my sins. Awesome. It meant nothing because I didn't have the understanding of saying, mom, Jesus literally was raised from the dead. This is a historical reality. So this affects everything about whether or not we believe that he can forgive our sins. The historical reality. That is the true gospel. Second question for this morning, what's the true response? The true response, if we believe that resurrection life is ours because of what Jesus did, is that resurrection life follows our death, just as it did Jesus' death, which means that we embrace death and burial in this life for the sake of the new one. We cannot have new life without giving up our old life. In this world, we are living in a time where saying no to yourself is almost unheard of. 
We need to live with the power of the cross. If saying no to yourself is not a daily battle, a daily death that you have to fight, then chances are you're enjoying living in the wrong truth structure. To live in the truth structure of death, burial, and resurrection is going to require us being on our knees in prayer for the power to say no to the things of this world, saying no to the patterns and the ways of this world. We need to spiritually die day by day. Our burial, our baptism is significant, is showing our burial so that we can live in resurrection life. A Christian mother who was suffering from cancer had the following wisdom to share as she spoke about her journey of coming to terms with the cancer that she was suffering with. She said, I learned that I had to be willing to die. I was desperately holding on to life, to my family, and I had to let go and be willing to let God take everything from me. To build our lives on this new, in this new way and on, a, on new life requires letting go of even the good things of this one, of being willing to let it go. And sometimes, for most of us, it is only when things are taken away forcibly that we realize that we were building our lives on the wrong thing and that we were holding on to things for dear life. A daily death and burial and resurrection, that is the true response. That resurrection means that with every suffering that we go through, with every letting go, with every daily dying, we do it hopefully. We do it with, in a faith-filled way, knowing, trusting that resurrection life is ours. I've been following uh, some ancient monks' prayers as I go to sleep in the last little while. There's a beautiful prayer for as you go to sleep that says this, God of all seasons, the sun has set, the night has come. Now I lay my soul to rest, trusting in the resurrection to come. It's just a, a letting go, isn't it? When we are worried about many things, we struggle to fall asleep. But the very act of letting go to fall asleep is a trusting, a trusting in the waking up of the morning, a trusting in the resurrection to come. And I think sometimes, because we've been borrowing so much from a materialist's world, we forget that we actually live in a world where resurrection truth is not unfamiliar. It is the natural development of the way that we live. We give up things every night, trusting that we will wake up in the morning, trusting in the resurrection to come. We plant seeds, trusting that in that dead seed, life will come. Actually, resurrection life ties in really well with everything that we have experienced of this world. The prophecies of old, what we've heard about from hundreds of eyewitnesses and happened to Jesus, and what we see in the natural world. All ties together, it is a congruent truth that makes sense that we would also rise again in life after death. So I've asked you two questions. What's the true gospel that you received and that we're going to want to live by with uh, consistency and congruency? Secondly, what's the true response? And then thirdly, what truth am I living what truth am I living in this? I've given it a little subtitle question, a different version of the same question. Would you live differently if there was no resurrection? Would your life look any different? Would your choices look any different if there was no resurrection? 
to come. Because the material world philosophy is YOLO, you only live once, you one life, live it, make the most of it. And there is biblical precedent for some of that living. There is the idea that we must make the most of every opportunity, that we should number our days aright. But that is a small truth. And the big truth of resurrection life and our future hope is the main truth of Christianity. And are we living like that is real? So I'll give you a little example. When Richard and I were preparing to go on a beach holiday last year, I received a gift a couple of weeks earlier of a pair of slops. And I chose not to wear them so that they would be new for the holiday. So I had this brand new pair of slops in the cupboard and I would wander around barefoot or in tackies wishing I could wear them, but saving them because I knew I was going to go on holiday. I wanted them to be new. Similarly, I went and bought a new bikini and I saved that in the cupboard. I didn't wear it. I wanted, wanted it to be new for holidays. I went to my sister-in-law and borrowed a whole lot of sundresses so that I would have something to wear on our holiday. If you looked at our life and the choices that we were making, saving money, putting away certain things, you would know that we were living consistently with the belief that we were going on a holiday to the beach. That we had an expectation of a future hope that we were investing into, planning for, saving for, because it was going to happen. Is that as obvious in our lives about the resurrection life? Are we investing for it, planning for it, saving for it, because it's going to happen? Paul writes this in verse 30 of chapter 15. As for us, the apostles, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. It's like my whole life philosophy would change. Paul's life made no sense without the resurrection. Without the resurrection, Paul's life was actually irresponsible, stupid, foolish, incongruent. It made no sense. His life made sense of the resurrection. Would we live any differently if we didn't believe in the resurrection? Are we living like we don't believe in it or like we do believe in it? Paul says this in verse 19. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If you were to look at his life and think, oh my gosh, if you knew there was no resurrection, even the benefit you're getting from having Jesus knowing that he loves you in this life, you would be most to be pitied. If we are so concerned about living a comfortable life here on earth, we don't really give much evidence of the resurrection in the way that we're living. People can't really look at us and think, or can people look at you and think, your life would make no sense if what you are believing is wrong. Then shame, you have really wasted a good life. Paul has an idea of maybe where these guys have, why they've given up their resurrection idea, the resurrection belief. In verse 33, he says, don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. So he's just said, let us uh, eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And it seems like the Corinthians are rather enjoying living the good life. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And he says, bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. And I say this to your shame. And why can he speak so strongly? Because he says, 
I am reminding you of the gospel that you already received. You received it. You stood on it. Are you honestly going to not hold firmly to it now? Are you going to let it go for the sake of eat and drink for tomorrow we die? You're living with this other roof structure and then you're wondering, oh, well, maybe this one doesn't. It's, you've lost the congruency of the truth that you live in and so now you're questioning the whole thing. And no wonder, because you weren't living according to it. Our practices eventually trickle down to undermine our beliefs when we're not practicing what we believe. Friends, to finish off, the gospel is not just moral advice. It's not just a guide to private spirituality, a nice meditation that's going to make you get through the day with less anxiety. That is not the gospel. That's not what you've been saved into. The gospel is an announcement that Jesus really died, was really buried, and was really raised from the dead, evidence that the worldview that he has been presenting from the beginning of time, congruently till today, stands, it holds water no matter which way you test it, whether it's testing it across time, whether it's testing it by who's heard it, by trying to live in it, it holds water. It is the true description of reality. I do worry that too often we make choices that are inconsistent with a Christian worldview and are instead just a thoughtless going with the flow of how the world makes choices. In this chapter, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, we are urged to create a culture that is thoughtful and a community whose truth is congruent with its beliefs all the way to its practices and daily choices. If we are going to call ourselves Christians, and we have made that choice, then we have agreed to the historical truth of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and we choose to follow it with our own death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus, the foundational doctrine that we believe is that he rose from the dead. The resultant beliefs is that we have resurrection life after death, And so the practice that is visible to the world is that we pour out this life for God, embracing death with hope.